But I'm glad to see you all here today. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 15, finishing up this chapter, uh, looking at verses 36 to verse 41. It will be on the screen. Also, there are some paperback Bibles in the pews around you. Feel free to use one of those uh, and take it with you. If you don't own a Bible, you can have that as a gift. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 15, 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you today for the privilege of your word. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we read it, as we study it. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us by your word. And Lord, I pray today that we would understand clearly what you have uh, so inspired the author Luke to write down for us. Uh, for indeed, every single bit of the, of the words of scripture are for our benefit. Not a one of them is is found in the pages of scripture by accident or by incident, but they have been put there intentionally. They are inspired. And so, Lord, let us not take for granted these words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Bless us today as we read. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many passages in the scriptures that um, people might point to when they think of what are some really sad passages in the scriptures. For indeed, there are. There are some very sad passages, very sad stories, very sad moments in the scriptures. And if you were to ask someone, what are, what are some of the saddest moments in the, in the scriptures? What are some of the saddest passages? People might point to, to something like the book of Lamentations. If you've ever read the book of Lamentations, you'll know that it's a very sad book as, as the people of God are, are lamenting what, uh, what God has, has brought upon them. They are lamenting their exile, their, uh, their difficulties. Some people might even point to uh, maybe something in the the Gospels, where Jesus says to those who stand before him and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal people in your name? And Jesus would declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a very sad passage. Uh, certainly many people would probably point to the story of Jesus on the cross. Uh, the, the climax of, uh, of the Gospels, where Jesus dies a death of a criminal. And indeed, that's a very sad passage, but one we know also has a very happy ending. But a a passage that I don't know that people would necessarily go to immediately when thinking about what are some of the sad passages in the scriptures, I don't think many people would probably go to this moment in Acts. But I would argue that this moment in Acts, especially if you've been studying the book of Acts, if you know what's happened so far in the book of Acts, is actually probably the saddest moment in the book of Acts. Indeed, it's, it's certainly up there and in the running. Because we have for us in this story in the book of Acts, the story of a broken relationship, the story of difficulty, the story of dissension. 
where two friends, two brothers, two partners on the mission field have now departed and gone separate ways over a disagreement. I remember when I was a, an intern at a church in Virginia, it was my very first year. Uh, it was my really very first experience in any kind of vocational ministry. I interned at a church in Virginia, and it was a, a much bigger church than, than even the church I was at, certainly than, than our church now. And um, it was quite an experience for me, because one of the first days after I got there and sort of began my internship, uh, the youth pastor who I was interning underneath uh, pulled me aside, took me into his office, and had a conversation with me to let me know what was going on in the church. I happened to have come to that church to intern at a season of great difficulty for the church, a season where there was a lot of disagreement. There was a lot of issues, even among the pastors of the church, and uh, to the point that uh, in that same summer while I was there, um, three out of the, the five pastors on staff resigned in the, the time when I was there. And it's not a side of ministry that people want to think about, that people want to acknowledge, that people want to uh, even know exists, and yet we know that the realities of living in a fallen world, even as Christians in a fallen world, even the church, that we experience broken relationships, that we experience heartache, that we experience difficulties. And in that summer as an intern, I, I probably learned more than all of the rest of my time in ministry together about uh, the pains and about the, the difficulties of broken relationships and disagreements among brothers and sisters in Christ. And it was a very difficult time for the church and, uh, and certainly one that had lasting effects. But I bring all this up to say that as much as we wish it weren't the case, even in the church, even in Christian ministry, among faithful believers and followers of Christ and even among leaders in the church, there arise disagreements and disputes. And oftentimes these can even result in broken relationships. This is true because though we are used by God as instruments of mercy, and that goes for all believers, I think it goes maybe in a special way for pastors, for missionaries, for evangelists. We know that even as we are used by God as instruments of mercy, we also know that we as instruments are imperfect. We are imperfect instruments. My hope today is that we can learn from God's word how it is that we can deal with these things, how, can we, how we can handle these situations when they arise in a way that is right, in a way that is godly. And so we want to start first and foremost with this story of Paul and Barnabas and their disagreement by looking at what is point number one, the heart of the, of the disagreement. Now, we come to this, and if you maybe haven't been following along or, or missed a sermon or two, you might... Uh, might not remember, but we made a, a small footnote a few weeks ago when we were back in Acts chapter 13, when we read this in Acts 13, 13, as, as Paul and, uh, and Barnabas had set out on their journey. We read this in Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We made a small footnote then that we would talk about it more later. Well, that time has come now because this one John who departed from them, this one John who left them and returned to Jerusalem is the one we see now here named John Mark. 
And we don't really know entirely why it is that at this time, back in in Acts 13, John departed from them. In fact, I think Luke really just makes a, a note of it there, not telling any description as far as what issue arose, what problem came up, what it was that, uh, that led John Mark to depart from them and to go back home. I think he does that intentionally. He just notes it, knowing that we're going to come back to it now. But we see now, as we come to Acts chapter 15, that it was a real sticking point when John Mark left, when he departed from Paul and Barnabas. And whenever Paul comes and it says, after some days, he said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. After some time, Paul, who had been given by God this burning desire, the desire to see the Gentiles saved, the desire to grow the church, the desire to be on mission for the sake of the gospel. After some time had passed and they had celebrated all that God had done here and in Antioch, and they had been ministering there, they had been preaching the word there, but, but Paul, having this desire put within him by the Lord, comes now to a certain time when he says, hey, it's time to go. It's time to go and, and get back on the mission field. It's time to go and visit the churches that we have, have planted, that, uh, that the Lord has so graciously started to see how they're doing, to encourage them, and, and perhaps see what other mission might be available for us out there, what other cities and places we might reach with the gospel. And so he comes to his brother in arms. He comes to Barnabas and says, Barnabas, are you ready? I think it's time that we go, that we go and encourage the churches, that we go and continue the work that we started. And he comes and tells Barnabas this, and Barnabas wanted, as the text tells us, to take with them John called Mark. And here's where the issue arises. For whatever the reason John left, we can tell from the context of our scripture here that it was not a reason that Paul found it at all acceptable. And there's every reason to believe that it was an unacceptable reason for him to depart. For as the, the ESV renders it, that Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Perhaps a better interpretation as the, the uh, New American Standard translate it says that he deserted them in Pamphylia. That for some reason or another, maybe it was relational issues, maybe it was fear of persecution, maybe it was the realization of the difficulty of the journey ahead, John Mark resigned. He deserted them. He abandoned them on the cause. And he did not continue on with them to the work. So Paul here, when Barnabas suggests this, he rejects it. Paul says, no, I don't want to take with this John Mark. I remember what he did. Don't you remember what he did the last time we brought him with us? He quit. He abandoned us. He deserted us. He is not qualified for this work. Paul was not claiming here that John Mark was was not a Christian. He was not rejecting him as a brother in Christ. Rather, he was simply saying that he was disqualified for this work, that he had proven himself to be unreliable, and that he even was to them a deserter. And so Paul, out of wisdom and on principle and recognizing the, uh, the difficulties that would certainly come even on this missionary journey, says, John Mark is not the right man for the job. I don't want to bring him, given what he has done. And everything about this that Paul says makes sense. I mean, even in the church, we have an understanding that there is a reality of, of 
some people having ability for certain things and some people not. There are some people who are very gifted for missions. And there are some people who are not. And Paul was saying clearly, John Mark has demonstrated to us that he is not able to do this work. He's not qualified for this work. And so it makes sense. And it is, in, in fact, understandable that Paul would, on principle, say, no, we're not going to take John Mark. But it's also understandable on the flip side that Barnabas, this one who, if you remember, was called the son of encouragement, would want to give John Mark another chance, would want to show him grace, and want to bring him along. We know that there was, in fact, an, an even familial relationship between John Mark and Barnabas. The text tells us that, uh, that he was his cousin, or some, uh, some might say that he was his nephew. Either way, uh, we know that there was this close relationship with Barnabas and, and John Mark, where Barnabas said, this is my cousin, this is my family. Let us show him grace. Let us give him another chance and bring him on this journey. I think he is able. I think he is worthy of consideration. Barnabas here wanted to show him grace and give him a second chance, which also makes sense. Indeed, it makes sense to to think, well, everyone deserves a second chance. Everyone falls short. Everyone messes up. Barnabas has a good point here. And, and probably has a very good relationship with John Mark to know and to be able to vouch for him to say he is ready. And yet we see in both of these, even though they both have valid points, even though they both are making sense, there is this sharp disagreement that arises between the two of them. And you might ask the question, some of you might even be thinking it right now, who's right in this situation? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Paul was being very practical, saying, hey, look at his past behavior. Look at his resume, okay? This guy's resume says he's probably not the right fit for the job. And Barnabas is saying, but look at this guy's character. Look at this guy's heart. Show him mercy. Show him grace. Let him come and let him serve along with us. And there are some who have argued that it it seems clear to them that Paul was right in this situation. I wouldn't be so hasty, but they would say that Paul is right in the situation. Why? Because we hear nothing else about Barnabas after this, at least not about the work that he goes on to do. But we hear all about Paul. We follow his story all the way through. Therefore, someone conclude Paul is right in this situation. And I don't think it's that simple. I don't think it's that easy. For never do we see a condemnation of Barnabas from the text of Scripture. Never do we see any sort of indication that his work was failed or lesser than the work that Paul goes on to, do, on to do. But we are prone to want to ask the question, who's right here? Someone had to be right, someone had to be wrong, don't they? Well, maybe. One pastor theologian named Brian Borgman says that the one thing that, is, uh, that you think is, or excuse me, whoever you think is right in this situation probably says more about you than it does about anything else. Because if you think about this situation, this disagreement that rises up, all of us probably have one leaning or another. I'll tell you for me, my leaning tends to go the way of, the way of Paul. Hey, the dude, the dude deserted us, right? I know that in my pride, I want to say, nope, he's out. Don't trust him anymore. 
But I also know that the heart being displayed here by Barnabas was also a good and right posture to take. For indeed, he knows John Mark well. Indeed, it's right to show mercy, to show grace. But ultimately, we are not given a, an answer in this text regarding the question of who in this story is right and who is wrong, Paul or Barnabas. But we can see a few certain things. Number, point number two as we go on is that we see that in the midst of this disagreement, in the midst of this dissension, there is a heavy weight of loss that's felt. We feel the weight of the loss in our story here today, and that is the loss of a relationship, the loss of camaraderie. In verse 39, we read this, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. I think once again here, the, the language of the, of the ESV and, and of certain other translations is perhaps a little too soft with regards to the situation. You see, the word translated sharp disagreement here, we hear sharp disagreement and we think, ah, a friendly debate. But the word for sharp disagreement here is one that denotes anger. Is one that denotes someone putting their foot down and refusing out of anger, with fury, even perhaps with a vengeance. That it's not just that, that Paul was saying, ah, John Mark, I'm not sure, I have some reservations. No, Paul was saying, absolutely not. We are not taking that guy with us. No way. And the same with Barnabas. Though he was the son of an encouragement, son of encouragement, stood in the same way. Obstinately set, no, we will take John Mark or else I'm not going with you. We see the tension, we see the anger, and we see it grow to the point that as the text says, they separated from one another. Again, the word separated just seems to to fall short. It's true, yes. But the Greek term for separated here indicates a forceful separation, almost a, a rendering asunder, a tearing away from Bar- Barnabas and Paul. So that we see that this, this anger, this disagreement, this issue that arose got to such a boiling point for these men that in anger they parted from one another. This was not a, a parting that we might call amicable or peaceable. They didn't shake hands and give each other a hug and say, well, good luck to you. I still really love you, brother. No, what the scriptures would have us see is that they turned their backs to one another, saying, you go your way and do ministry over there. I'm going to go my way and do ministry over here and take who I want. That is the attitude that we see here on display. In a sense, one of the things that we see in this is that there's an unwillingness of the biblical authors to whitewash anything in the scriptures. Because remember who we're talking about here. This is the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote much of our New Testament, the one who is, who is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, the great Apostle Paul, and Barnabas, son of encouragement, the dude who was leading the church in Antioch that would become the sending church to take the gospel to the nations. 
these great men of the faith who we would look up to and we would honor, and, it, and indeed it's right to do so, are now seen here as getting so angry with one another that they can't stand to be around each other, that they part ways. And we see how this really does hurt. When you consider the relationship that Paul and Barnabas had, to be honest with you, as I've been studying through the book of Acts to, to preach through this book, this dissension, this argument, this separation carries more weight because when you understand just the intimacy that was there between Paul and Barnabas, all that they had been through, when you think about how their relationship began, Indeed, when Paul was brought to the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 9, it was Barnabas who came to his support, who came to his defense. In Acts 9, 26 through 27, this is, this is when Paul and Barnabas begin their relationship. We read here, And when he, that being Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. You remember this scene? When the apostle, before he was called the apostle, when Paul, formerly uh, uh, referred to in Acts as Saul, when he comes to the Jerusalem council, they said, hey, isn't this the guy that was just killing Christians, that was hunting us down, that was opposed to us? And they didn't trust him. They didn't believe that the Lord had done the work in this man that was claimed. But then the following verse, in verse 27, who comes to his defense? Verse 27 says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is how their relationship with, began with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who took a stand on the sake or on behalf of Paul, on behalf of what God had done in his life to say, "This man is our brother," to tell of what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. It was Barnabas who came to Paul's defense. What a way to start a relationship, to start a friendship, when no one else would come to your defense, when everyone there in the in Jerusalem, hated you and feared you in the church. It was none other than this man, Barnabas, who took the Apostle Paul by the hand, who vouched for him, who stood alongside him when it seemed like no one else would. Consider how Barnabas supported Paul throughout both of their ministries. In chapter 11 of Acts, in verses 22 through 26, we read this concerning Paul and Barnabas, another picture of their relationship, where, where Barnabas was, was a pastor. He was pastoring at the church in Antioch. He was leading there in verses 22 through 26 of chapter 11 of Acts. We read this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted all of them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the holy spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the lord this is barnabas here who is spoken of as a good man filled with the holy spirit faithful 
And he had been given this charge over this church in Antioch. He had really the opportunity to serve them as their pastor, to lead this church. But what does he do? In verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met in the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In this story, in this scene in the life of Barnabas and and Paul, Barnabas had every opportunity to have the, the leadership of this church to himself, in a sense to make a name for himself here in Antioch. But Barnabas, being a, a wise man, being a humble man, says, I know what these people need, and I know who they need. They need this guy, Paul, who's able to teach, who's able to instruct, and is going to be used by the Lord in a mighty way. And so he comes, and he takes Paul, and puts him here in the church in Antioch, and continues to readily support the work being done there by the Apostle Paul. And then look at the work of missions that they did, side by side, how they suffered for the sake of the gospel, side by side. In Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14, all the way it was Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. They were like peas and carrots. I'm reminded of of a story, well, first of all, of the fact that we think about on being on the battlefield. There's a, a, a show that's on Netflix right now, I think it was an HBO series originally called Band of Brothers, where it's the story of these men, and it's, it's of uh, uh, true stories that are being depicted here of, of men who were at war together. And you see how quickly and how readily bonds are built between these men. That they are more than just acquaintances, they are more than just Guys from all these different states who come together and happen to serve alongside of one another. But we know it to be the case that in war, in battle, in foxholes, the bond that is, that is fashioned, that is grown between brothers in arms is a deep, it is a lasting, it is a, uh, an intimate bond. Indeed, it is, a, it is a brotherhood. It is not just co-workers, it is not just acquaintances, it is a brotherhood so that they would do anything for the brother next to them. They know that their brother next to them would do anything for them. That's similarly true with those who serve on the front lines of ministry and missions together as well. That there is an intimacy that is born, that there is a brotherhood that is developed in them and among them. And especially for those like Paul and Barnabas, where theirs was almost both. In many cases, they found themselves being persecuted, being punished, being stoned, all of these terrible things happening to them. You can imagine how that might have grown them together. Indeed, on the mission field, that is one of the deepest places where intimacy and camaraderie grows in the midst of suffering. I'm reminded of the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. I've talked about these men before once in a sermon. I'm going to talk about them again because it's a story that's, that's quite amazing. These are two men. They were English reformers, and they were both martyred for their faith. And they really had very little um, overlap in their lives. Even though they were alive at the same time, uh, they really didn't have much interaction with one another. There wasn't much crossover in their lives and in their work and in their ministries, But what they did hold in common was that they were both followers of Jesus Christ who took a stand for the true gospel in the face of a vicious Roman Catholic monarchy. 
And they were ultimately both killed for their faith and martyred. And in fact, they were brought out and martyred together. That is really where their lives overlap. And even in this, as they had, done, as they had been on the front lines, that they had been doing the work separately, we see what happens when they come together in these last moments to be killed with one another, be sacrificed, to be burned at the stake. We see the camaraderie and the brotherhood immediately. I'm going to read for you from a story of, uh, it's from a book called 100 and, 140 Christians Everyone Should Know. And it reads as this, talking about this time when they were killed. Ridley, that is Nicholas Ridley, arrived at the field of execution first. When Latimer arrived, the two embraced. And Ridley said, be of good heart, brother. For God will either assuage the fury of the flame or strengthen us to abide it. They both knelt and prayed before listening to an exhortation from a preacher, as was the custom before an execution for heresy. First of all, you got to wonder, that sermon must have been almost as bad as the torment of the flames, wouldn't it? The sermon that they were forced to endure as they were about to be killed for the sake of the true gospel. And after this sermon was done, they were offered another chance to recant, another chance to take back what they had said. And in the face of this offer, knowing that there was nothing left after this but for them to be executed, they stood firm and refused. Well, concluded Ridley, so long as the breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ and his known truth. God's will be done in me, he said. As the chain of iron was wrapped around the waist of Ridley and Latimer, when the wood was about Ridley's feet, it was lit, and Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. In this moment, you see these two men who had very little in common, but one thing they had in common was that they stood on the front lines for the sake of the gospel. And that was enough. That bond so, so developed an intimacy and a closeness among these men who otherwise knew each other very little that they embraced one another at the time of their death that they encouraged one another that they prayed with one another even up to their last breath and we see this great picture not only of faithfulness but of brotherhood among believers all the more with paul and barnabas would they have had the same kind of intimacy the same kind of love and relationship that had developed and that's what makes this so difficult to read and to hear is that these brothers in arms who had been through so much together, who had served side by side, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm for the sake of the gospel, now over something that wasn't even a gospel issue, their relationship had been torn. They had been separated. It's a tragedy. It's sad, it's devastating to read that this issue of John Mark and whether or not he should go with them, again, not a gospel issue. When we consider whether or not they, they could or couldn't have taken John Mark, the answer is yes. Either way, it would have been okay. The gospel was not at stake in whatever decision was made, and yet over this, what Calvin calls a trivial issue, the relationship was broken. And in this moment, as this was happening, it would have seemed 
to those who witnessed it, to the church, that there was no rational reason why the Lord would allow such a tragedy. Why the Lord would would allow this relationship of these two great men in the church, these missionaries who'd done such great work with one another and, and so supported one another and cared for one another, that their relationship would now be torn apart. It seemed senseless. But point number three that I think we should be encouraged by is the sovereignty of God even in this. Just like when these things happen in our life, it can oftentimes be difficult. We can find ourselves questioning why the Lord would do something like this. What on earth could his will possibly be in this? That relationships would be destroyed? That ministries would be hurt? All because of relational issues, because of attitudes, because of tempers, because of bullheadedness? I'm reminded of, a, of an example even um, relatively recently uh, seen in a, on a very large stage, and that is Together for the Gospel. If you all aren't, aren't familiar with what Together for the Gospel was, it was a, a conference among uh, some, some leading pastors and, and theologians from various um, denominations, but all who stood firm on what the gospel truly is, and they developed and, and began this conference in order to help train pastors in order to help encourage the church even across denominational lines and and there was a lot of joy found and a lot of work even good and right work done by these men and and by these conferences t4g and yet in a very public way it became evident that these relationships over things that were not gospel issues but were secondary issues were torn apart were torn asunder. And ultimately, it brought together for the gospel to an end. And we see things like this happen in our lives, whether on a, on a stage like together for the gospel, or even whether it be in our local church, among friends, among brothers, even among pastors. And we can be left asking these same questions, why on earth would this happen? This is out of control. But I want us to consider for a moment the outcome of the incident between these brothers. We know what Paul ended up going on to do. No, in no way was the, the Lord's mission hindered, even though his instruments are flawed and even though men are sinful and behave sinfully. He went on to finish his missionary work along with Silas and even picked up a young man named Timothy who would be instrumental in the life of the early church. But we see also, even though we aren't told much about Barnabas throughout the book of Acts, we don't hear a ton more about John Mark. But one thing we do see is that even the work that Barnabas and John Mark went on to do also prospered. They went on to go and proclaim the gospel to other places that wouldn't have had the gospel proclaimed if they had gone along with Paul. Not only that, John Mark, I don't know if you're aware, ended up writing a, a, a book, a letter that we find most valuable. That is the gospel of Mark. That even after this broken relationship, even after it seemed that, that the Lord was not at work here, we can look back over the course of these men's lives and see that even in their belligerence, even in their bullheadedness, God was still sovereign. And he used it for his glory. 
so that the work would go forth, so that the gospel would go to even more people, and even so that the gospel of Mark would be written and would be a benefit, a necessary benefit to the church forever. In a sense, we see the answer to the question of who was right, Paul or Barnabas. In a sense, we see that both Paul and Barnabas were right. Both of them were right in their judgment. I think it's right to say that, that John Mark was probably not suited well for the task at hand. I don't think Paul was necessarily wrong in that. That he had proven himself to be maybe unfaithful, unreliable. But that doesn't mean that in no way was John Mark going to be useful and used by God for any other purpose. For indeed, we see that the Lord had other plans for John Mark. That he would go on to, to continue the work of ministry, even to write for us the great gospel of Mark. And we see Barnabas was also right. And that even though he might not have been suited well for that job, Barnabas did identify and rightly show grace to Mark, but he also identified in Mark that the Spirit was at work and that the Lord had a purpose for him. It is sometimes the case that we're not properly suited for a particular task. But as we know, none of us as believers in here are not given gifts by the Holy Spirit. We might not be given a particular set of gifts that we would want, maybe not a particular set of gifts that would lead us to a, a, a specific calling that we might first think or first desire. But each of us in here, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, has been prepared by God for a task. In the case of John Mark, it might not have been missions in the same way that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were cut out for missions. But the Lord had another plan for him and continued to use him in a mighty way. Now this in no way justifies the wrongs that were done, the stubbornness that was displayed, the, the bullheadedness that we saw from both Paul and from Barnabas. For in, indeed, both of them were right in a sense, and yet both of them were wrong in their refusal to budge and in their anger and in their dissension with one another over a trivial matter. The conclusion of this story shows that even though that is the case, and even though the Lord is sovereign, we also see that there's always hope for reconciliation. For while this relationship was broken between Paul and Barnabas, the New Testament thankfully doesn't leave us there. But we see what follows we don't know how long the dissension lasted. We don't know how long the bitterness remained. But what we do know is at some point, these men confessed their sin, repented of their sin, and were reconciled to one another. And we know this because of the fact that Paul, in later places, in fact, multiple times, would speak very highly of Barnabas and especially of John Mark. This one who he had so harshly criticized, who he had so vehemently opposed that he joined them on their journey, he would later say things like this in 2 Timothy 4.11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. We see that even in the midst of the most difficult hurt, and the most difficult pain, and the most broken of situations among believers, and it does happen. As much as we might hate it, it does happen. We know that reconciliation is never off the table. It's never not an option but that if we would confess our sin and repent of our sin, 
that we can be reconciled one to another, forgive one another. How often have we risked or even sacrificed relationships with our brothers and sisters over principle for the sake of trivial things? I would argue for every single one of us in here that any broken relationship we've ever had with a brother or a sister in Christ has been over exactly that, over principle or over a trivial issue. For hardly any of us in here can say that the broken relationships that we see in our past with our brothers, with our sisters, with maybe a fellow church member, with maybe a a former pastor, I would say probably none of us in here can say it was over the gospel and therefore the rift remains. In many cases, we are too quick to risk or even sacrifice relationships over trivial matters. What should we do in these situations? What should we do when when difficulties arise and maybe we have good reason for standing where we stand? And yet when we stand there, bullheaded, stubborn, it could very well cost us our relationship. What is more important? Simple question. Us being right or the relationship being kept, being mended? In this case, we learn from the example of Paul and Barnabas what not to do. It's not very often we see that in the scriptures that we learn from from guys of this caliber what not to do, but indeed here we do see, even though we can look back and say the Lord was sovereign and he had a plan in this, in no way does that justify the hard-heartedness of these men. But we learn from their example what not to do. But we also should learn what we do after these things. When relationships have been broken, when, when a rift has been formed, when we have been torn asunder over various things, and that is we should do the same thing that happened with Paul and Barnabas and, and John Mark, is that we confess those things and we seek to be reconciled. Whatever it takes, as much as it might cost us putting our pride aside, saying that we were wrong, or saying that it didn't matter, and we had sinned, we ought to be reconciled one to another. We are given the perfect example of, of reconciliation from Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then he says this in verse 10 and following. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Jesus gives us the perfect picture of reconciliation in the gospel. But what has he done to reconcile us to the Lord? The answer is everything. There is nothing that we did in order to be reconciled to the Lord. He did everything. He went all the way. He didn't come 99% of the way and we came the other 1% of the way so that we could be reconciled. No, in Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. It is all something that he has done on our behalf. If you're a believer in here today, 
then you are reconciled to God purely because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus to reconcile you. And if you're not a believer in here today, then this is the good news of the gospel, that you are an enemy of God, but that in Christ Jesus, you can be reconciled to God by trusting in Christ by faith. You can be removed from standing underneath the wrath of God and put under his love and his grace and his mercy in Christ Jesus by faith in him alone. And then the question we need to ask as we consider broken relationships and how difficult they are, how hard they are, and how sinful they are, we can say, what ought we be willing to do to reconcile with our brothers and with our sisters in Christ? Let's pray.